0: So great, thanks. So this evening um, uh, we'll begin this um, unfolding of this week with this topic on on the mindfulness practice, and um, and it's actually uh, kind of getting into our mainstream culture. We were having lunch, and and there the topic. Um, came up that there was an article in the New York Times recently about um, different ways of falling asleep on the plane, how to encourage, you know, to, to, uh, to relax on the plane. And, um, and this article mentioned vipassana, insight meditation, and so that's really actually quite unusual that um, a very strange word like vipassana showing up in the middle of you know the the New York Times article, but um, this article actually was written. I believe I don't know Sharon. Maybe you can correct me, but I, I actually think this was written about IMS um, a couple of years ago. Um, uh, but it talks about a journalist from the New York Times going on a meditation retreat, and uh, so he writes. Meditation retreats, at this place at least, are no picnic. If at the end you feel like leaving Shangri-La, that's because the beginning felt like Guantanamo. (laughs) We spent five and a half hours a day sitting in meditation, four hours a day in walking meditation. I was feeling achy, far from nirvana, and really, really sick of the place. I didn't like that morning yogi job. (laughs) I don't like vegetarian food and I wasn't particularly fond of all those Buddhists with those self-satisfied looks on their faces, (laughs) walking serenely like they knew something that I didn't know, which it turns out they did. What I hated above all was that I wasn't succeeding as a meditator. Now, you're not supposed to think of succeeding at meditating, and you're not supposed to blame yourself for failing, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I love those last three words, because this meditation retreat reduced a New York Times journalist to writing <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Talk about beyond the conceptual mind. And we really quickly, whether it's in this, you know, sort of facetious article or not, but we really quickly see in our own experience in this beautiful setting, e- even in the middle of, I mean, some of the, the rainstorm was actually quite phenomenal. Um, you know, in this beautiful location in which every need gets met, you know, the food, the accommodations, the safety, um, We get to see what the mind does, and often it's really the blah, blah, blah. It's about wanting to be somewhere else, doing something else, thinking that something else should happen other than this amazing experience that is unfolding in front of us. And so this practice is continually inviting us over, over and over again, with this gentleness to see clearly what is happening in this moment as opposed to the moment that we want or that we don't want or that we've just completely ignored and taken for granted. It illuminates things that we have just not been conscious of in in the in the past. So in a way It brings to light things that we have taken so much for granted. I mean, how many times in your day do you give a second thought to your breath until you get ill or until you're gasping for breath and then you realize, oh, this is a really precious experience that I could not live without. How often in your day, as you um, walk through the world, do you actually notice the walking? And uh, many of you have lost, you know, either been physically impaired or had an injury. And so you know that when we lose that ability to ambulate, it becomes precious. But we usually take for granted you know this, this um, amazing sort of uh, feast that comes three times a day that we are able to feed ourselves and not every single being in this world has that capacity or that ability or that privilege. Our mindfulness practice allows us to really become aware of things that we normally don't think of. I decided to become a hospice volunteer after seeing how hospice helped my mom in her final months with colon cancer. She died peacefully and nearly pain-free. I felt nervous walking into the nursing home to visit my first patient, Emma, who was dying of cancer. The hospice trainers had warned me that some patients wouldn't be receptive to visits, and in that case, I should leave. So when I walked into Emma's room, I introduced myself, and she said, I don't need any missionaries. You're wasting your time. As I turned to go, I said, my mom was a colon cancer patient, too. Emma looked up. Did she die of it? Yes, I said and what was it like for her in the end? It was peaceful, I said. She was lucid and we talked together every day before she went into a coma and never woke up. Did religion help her? Yes and no, I replied. Emma half smiled. That's the same for me. I went from visiting once a week to two or three times. I'd been told she had only a couple of months to live, but she continued to be my patient for over a year. She told me that she had been a court reporter, that she had never married, and had many regrets about friends that she had dropped along the way because she was just too busy. One day Emma asked, so where are you going when you leave here? I sighed to the grocery store. I absolutely hate grocery shopping. I've been doing it for 40 years and I am so tired of it. Emma looked out the window. Oh, I'd give anything to be able to get out of this bed, put on real clothes, make a list of what I want to eat, walk out that door and drive to the store. She described how she'd pick up whatever she wanted and go home, cook it for herself, and maybe invite a friend over for dinner. Listening to her made me aware of how much I took for granted. When I returned a few days later, Emma's bed was empty. A staff member told me that she had passed away just a few hours earlier. Grocery shopping has never been the same since. We tend not to value the preciousness of this life that we alluded to um, yesterday and all of today. We actively actually try to change the direct experience of what is arising because we either don't like what's happening and we push it away or we actually like what's happening and we want more of it. And The third option is, is that It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant and we don't even notice it at all. None of those things is actually the direct experience of our life that's being lived. We actually tend to, without awareness, create an experience that we think we should be having and in that case, we're living a thought, not reality. And it's not the content of the thought that we're living. It's not that you know, the content becomes reality. It's that the thought process, the thinking process becomes our reality. So the invitation is really to go beyond who we think we are, what we think we're doing, to get out of the way of this thinking process, and to explore the life that's actually being lived in this moment. (laughs) Starting to notice the details of our experience, and and so the invitation with this morning, with Gino's invitation into the, the body and the breath, is really to start with a neutral object, and, um, and for most people, the breath is a neutral experience. Just to notice, how is the breath for you in this moment? Not needing it to be any other way than it is. Whether it's short or long, it, this, is, this practice is not about forcing the breath to be a certain kind of breath. And as we begin to open up the practice, as we will throughout the week, It's just like meeting the breath for what it is. It's just meeting all of your experience, whether it's the 10,000 joys or the 10,000 sorrows. Simply meeting it for what it is. Not needing to push it away because you don't like it. Not needing that you want more of it. So this back and forth is the manipulation. But the awareness is simply this meeting and you can feel how gentle this action is—it's how 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 soft it is. This paying attention to the experience of our lives is actually quite a profound experience that we um, that we have from the moment that we're born. Because, in some way, paying attention is our experience of love. And if you, know, if you haven't been parents in this lifetime, all of us have been children. And we know that, um, I, I actually have two new re- uh, grandchildren, one and, and two years old. And I know, if I'm not paying attention to them, they are not feeling loved and they will tell me that. And you can reflect back on your own experience that, that this aspect of paying attention to is an aspect of, of caring and kindness. And this is what this retreat is about. It's about opening to all of your experiences so that you can pay attention with kindness. Pay attention with a heart that is wide open. Sharon has written this this book, this beautiful book, but I love the title. It's, it's um, a heart that is as wide as the world. It's such a beautiful image. And the more that you are aware of your experience, the more you're offering yourself this experience of love. It may not feel, it may not cognitively seem like love, because we have so many thoughts about what love is. But this gentle acceptance of who you are, what you're going through, is kindness. Part of mindfulness, the Pali word sati, an aspect of mindfulness is the ability to remember. The ability to remember what will lead to more happiness and less suffering. It's one of the reasons I like this t-shirt. Because it, it actually reminds me. Because I don't always feel like love. And I also have this experience that I don't always have the experience that that our culture supports that. And so I actually wore this t shirt um, when I was, uh, a couple of days when I was in Boston um, before this retreat. And I walked into a store, and it's interesting, because this is a kind of a bold statement I am love. people would avert their eyes. Um, and one of the clerks looked at, at me and said, really, is that true? In a kind of you know, like confrontational way. It was like, where are you coming from? And, um, and so I had to check in with myself around, so what's true? I mean, she's asking, is this true? Well, what is true? And I just said, you know, well, I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. I mean, I don't know if I. <laughs> <laughs> this shirt actually comes from a um, a new anti-bullying initiative in Southern California, and I loved what Bonte said last night about the first precept, that um, the refraining from violence and killing. And that the affirmative, um, the affirmative expression of the absence of violence is the presence of love. And so as we become more and more mindful and aware, love and kindness has the ability to be present. So regardless of what comes up in our our sitting or our walking practice, you may incline yourself to the body or the breath and the the mind may feel distracted. And just allowing the mindfulness to be with the distraction. And then with gentleness, coming back to the breath. And there may be judgment that comes up about, There the mind goes again. There I go again. And just noticing the judgment and how that feels for you. Not needing to judge the judgment. And there lies your mindfulness. Not needing to feed where the mind is going. So as we um, progress through the week, we will um, unfold um, these foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha um, offered to us. Um, They're formally documented in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, and they include starting with the breath, with um, physical sensations of the body, Um, we'll go into the foundation called Vedana, which is the noticing of the pleasant, unpleasant, and the um, what's called neutral, or the, the sensations that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And we will unfold into um, more complex experiences of our emotional life, of our thinking world. and and it will, it will broaden. The the invitation is to start settling the mind on a single object and yet it's not, that's not the purpose of meditation is to, you know, focus on your breath 24-7 walking around the world like, kind of like a zombie. But the point of the meditation or the mindfulness practice is so that you have access to awareness in every moment regardless of what arises. And to acknowledge that we'll also be talking about challenges to our our practice and classically they're called the hindrances, things that um, seem like challenges and yet they're really just simply energies that flow through every single person's practice um, that there's, there's no need to, to personalize or, or take on um, these, these obstacles as, as that you've done anything wrong. These are energies that simply arise when we sit. And um, there are five of these sort of classically described conditions. Uh, one is the, the, the hindrance of sense-desires, wanting things to be a certain way. Wanting or the desire, whether it's of the six senses, um, uh, or whether it's, it's simply wanting to be the moment to be something other than it is. And the opposite of that wanting is the aversion or the pushing away. Sometimes it's, it's um, described as anger or fear. And then the next two are also linked. Uh, and some of you may have already experienced this, this third hindrance called sloth and torpor, classically, or um, sleepiness. You know, we, we live such busy lives that when we, when we um, even have the intention to quiet and settle, Everything needs a rest. And so there's a way in which when you first come into a retreat, that the body is tired, the mind is tired. And just to allow the awareness to be with that too, not needing to judge, but just simply being with. So this is what sleepiness is. This is what what, um, the sluggish mind feels like. Sometimes the opposite of that arises, which is the restlessness, the inability to actually sit still for 45 minutes or half an hour, or, the, um, the ra- or that it may be an internal experience of restlessness, the racing mind, the, the mind that is thinking about what you need to do when you leave the retreat, all that list of things that are piling up, the emails that you may need to get to. And all of that is not actually what's arising in this moment. The fifth is um, skeptical doubt. What's called skeptical doubt. This energy that uh, that makes you question your reason for being here. You know, that, that first evening when I was quoting that Radiant Sutra of that you completely belong here regardless of who you are and what your life experience is. And somehow doubt sometimes undermines that, that inherent sense of you belong in this life exactly as you are. So just to notice that these are just energies that come and go. And that the power of our awareness practice is that the awareness of the hindrance is not the hindrance itself. The awareness of the hindrance is not being lost in it. So, for example, if you feel the aversion or the anger or the pushing away, you n- I don't know if you've had this experience, but There are ways in which you can actually um, pour fuel on the flames, right? You can get angry at being angry. You can get depressed at getting depressed. But if you're simply aware of the experience as it arises, you're actually not feeding it. And so like with the breath, like with all of this practice, and it's one of the reasons I love this this practice, because it has a path, It it doesn't just tell you get there, it actually shows you a way of incrementally cultivating this capacity for the mind to be aware and the heart to be open. And so just like with the breath, we start incrementally and then open up to more and more objects of our of our practice it sometimes is sounds so trivial but one of the places to begin is this practice that we call the itch and it's a physical sensation right and so what happens when an itch arises in your consciousness what happens you you scratch it. What happens when you don't need to scratch that itch? Because there is another side to the experience. But you'll never know the other side of that experience unless you just be with it. And you know that that physical discomfort ain't going to kill you. Even though in the moment you feel, you know, contracted. And so this is a metaphor. This is not about, you know, when you get a mosquito bite, you're not going to scratch. This is a metaphor of how many itches in your life do you scratch because you want them to go away? How many uncomfortable situations in your life do you not live through because you just want them to go away? And so you medicate, you, you make yourself feel good, in order not to actually go through that experience and see what the other side of that experience is, what insight is is inviting us into. And so as we as we sit with these incremental practices, we're training our minds to be steady. It's not about not responding to life. It's about responding to life with wisdom. And what does wisdom mean? It, in, in the Buddhist tradition, it really is that place of knowing what is going to lead to less suffering? What is going to lead to greater happiness in my life and the life of others? So at the East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Oakland, some of our teachers work in the elementary schools in um, uh, some of the most intense schools um, in 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 Oakland, and um, and so there's been mindfulness that's offered in homerooms for um, I guess the program's been going on for a couple of months or maybe even a year, and um, there's this beautiful story that. Uh, Uh, one of the nine-year-old boys came up to the meditation teacher and said, guess what? What? And he said, I just found out something. Well, what did you find out? I just found out. When I get angry, I don't have to do anything about it. (laughs) That may have been revelatory for that little boy, but that is profound for a community in, in, in where this school is located. That it, this practice is not just about our individual experience. It's the possibility of actually changing how we are with each other. Another example of this showed up in, a, in another uh, news article that they're offering mindfulness trainings to, um, uh, to the military uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, to prevent some of the post-traumatic stress symptoms that arise. Um, but this was an interesting um, um, byproduct of this training One guy, a veteran of several deployments to Iraq, said he was out at dinner the previous night when a customer at a nearby table said that he and his friends were being obnoxiously loud. The vet said, at one time I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for the jugular. But guided by the new mindfulness techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. Later, the guy came over and apologized. This is the reconditioning of the patterns of our unconscious life, our habits. Noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it. Noticing that itch. Noticing the impulse and not needing to act on it is actually a high a highly evolved place. And as we continue to practice, to to, um, invite our awareness to whether it's the object of our body or our breath, we're actually strengthening this capacity. It's like this muscle of our mind being, being reconditioned. And again, we start with these simpler activities and topics or objects. And so I just really wanna um, underscore something that uh, Gina offered this morning, which was the walking practice that it is not a secondary practice. And I invite you to wholeheartedly dive into this and treat it as your primary practice. Because in the Satipatthana Sutta, when, they, when the Buddha lists the four postures of mindfulness, walking actually comes first. Sitting comes second. So I don't know if that is actually significant or not but it's something to notice that you know how is this body when the body is in motion are you really aware that you have 26 bones in your body in your foot each foot you have 33 joints and all of it is working in consonants in order to do this thing that we call ambulation, and it's actually, uh, I have a slight injury in my lower back, and so when I walk, I'm very conscious. It's not just the feet that are doing your walking. Your body is doing the walking, and how precious this is that, that we can do this activity in the world. Supposedly, we take up to 8,000 steps a day, and that's about 1600 miles a year how many of those steps are you actually aware of so this is just a place of curiosity you know can you be curious about something that seems so mundane curiosity is actually one of those factors sometimes it's called investigation those factors that that allow insight and awakening to to happen because It's actually hard to keep your mindfulness on something that you're bored with. So can you find places of interest? Thich Nhat Hanh (coughs) has this beautiful passage about walking meditation. If we're really engaged in mindfulness while walking, then we will consider the act of each step we take as infinite wonder and a joy will open in our hearts like a flower, enabling us to enter the world of reality. I like to walk alone on country paths, putting each foot down on the, mo- on the earth in mindfulness. Knowing that I walk on this wondrous earth in such moments, existence is a miraculous and mysterious reality. People usually consider walking on water or in thin air a miracle, but I think the real miracle is not to walk either on water or in thin, thin air, but to walk on earth. Every day we are engaged in a miracle which we don't even recognize. Again, that, that ability to be aware of something that we usually take so much for granted. And all of this is cumulative. All of this incremental building of your your mindfulness. That twelve step, one step at a time. Transformation is always this, this incremental um, development, and then you reach a tipping point. Dr. Martin Luther King said, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the entire staircase. Just take the first step. And that's what we're inviting you into, this, this incremental process of transforming your relationship." With your experience. One last story about, about walking meditation. So, um, our center in Oakland is uh, on Broadway, which is one of the busiest streets um, uh, going towards downtown. And um, whether it's a weekend or a weekday, there's always a lot of traffic on, on the sidewalks and, and in the roads. And so our, uh, our, our hall is, I don't know, maybe a third the size. Some of you are here, so maybe it's about a third. It can only fit like you know, 60 or 70 people max. So we have no room to do walking meditation, and we do walking meditation on the sidewalk. So we go out into the sidewalk, and we do this very slow walking meditation. And it's so, I, I, one day I went across the street and just watched, you know, the whole day long do walking meditation. And, and life in Oakland didn't stop. But it's, it was like a movie because it slowed down. You know, two blocks before the center, you know, the cars were going, and then they slowed down and <laughs> were looking at what's happening. People walking on the sidewalk would slow down. you actually begin to affect people around you, whether you know them or not. So really, I invite you into this walking practice as a, as a way of, of um, increasing your capacity to be aware. That it is um, that it is just as beautiful and insightful as your sitting practice. And the walking practice also is such a metaphor for life in terms of our ability to, to, to be on a path, to live into a life that we see ourselves living. About 20 years ago, I came out to my parents as a gay man, and um, it was a long walk for all of us. It was a long journey for all of us. My father has since passed, um, but when my mother first um, became aware of my orientation, um, her immediate response was, you're going to die, because at, at that time, she equated... HIV and AIDS with death and so we had to walk through that, you know, she had to walk through her own education and I had to, I had to somehow have my own boundaries and also support her in that process. Eight years ago, Stephen and I, uh, this was before the whole marriage issue came up, but Stephen and I had a commitment ceremony and um, it was uh, challenging for her. Uh, She didn't know whether she wanted to come to the ceremony, she didn't know if she wanted to not come, she didn't know if she wanted to bless it, and, and she eventually came but she was dressed in gray and black. <laughs> and that was so emblematic of the mood she was in. <laughs> and she proceeded to um, the day after, I remember going up to, to visit them, and the day after she proceeded, it was a brilliant day in early June, and it was sunny, the weather cooperated. She proceeded to tell me everything that went wrong with, you know the ceremony, uh, you know, the seating arrangements, the food, whatever it was. And you know, this was another thing that we had to actually walk through. So almost exactly a year ago was um, when the fifteen year old boy in Indiana hung himself um, because he was outed in his high school, and um, it was in late September that, if you recall, Tyler Clemente suicided off the um, Golden Gate Bridge, the uh, Rutgers student and I was sitting in front of the news with my mother, and um, we were watching this and she turned to me, and there was a slightly different inflection in her voice. And she said, were you ever bullied? And it was, a, you know, whenever she's asked me about my orientation, or about my relationships, or she's never really wanted to know. And so I'd never really disclosed that much to her in the past. Um, uh, That was just the dynamic between us. And yet, I felt a different inflection. And this is noticing the transitions as opposed to thinking I even know who she is as my mother. Not assuming that I think I know where this conversation is going. And so I went with it. And I said, you know, this, this, and this happened, especially when I was in junior high school. And, and she turned to me and said, why didn't you tell us? We would have done something. We would have supported you in any way that we could. And this was a conversation that didn't last more than 10 minutes. But I tell you, it wiped away 50 years of conditioning. And that this this process of healing is never too late. And that this awareness of noticing the transition in the relationship, you know, the turning point, this is why... In the walking meditation, we ask you to watch the turn, the transition. It feels so mundane, it, but it's the transitions in your life that are so meaningful and so healing. One of, in my experience, one of the healing aspects of awareness is that you can't change anything that you're not aware of. You have to be aware and then you have that choice point. And that choice point is what is going to lead to more happiness? What is going to lead to less suffering? That possibility has healing. You know, in my own story, it's the healing around, you know, wha- the vortex of our, our family interactions. Every family has them in different ways. But in the, in the story of, the, of the, the boy in the Oakland elementary school, the awareness of his own emotions has the possibility of, of affecting his peer group. Of his community, in a different way. And the story about the um, the the veteran from Iraq, that healing might have an impact in the conflict of nations. This practice is not just about our own experience, our own salvation, our own path. This practice has such an impact on ourselves, our loved ones, in the world that we live. We don't do it just for our own happiness. We do it for for all the beings around us, for the benefit of all beings. That is such a repeated phrase in this tradition. This is what it means. It's not just an idealistic concept. It's that our practice here, what we do here, creating peace and kindness in ourselves, is so needed in the world. Each time we practice this, um, this this place of mindfulness and awareness. We're transforming our own world, but we're also transforming the world around us. Are you willing to be aware of that? Are you willing to go there? practice allows this collective journey to be some, something of tra- a transformation towards freedom. The Buddha's teachings raises our collective capacity to live together, to love together, to be kind and generous together. It's not some postponement into some unknown future of your freedom. You're actually creating moments of freedom, moments of kindness right now. And the Buddha said that he would not teach that which is not possible. So all of this is possible for all of us. May it be so. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit for a moment.